I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. Today I'm talking to Michael Wood, an emeritus professor at Princeton and contributing editor at the LRB. He's the author of many books on Yeats, Nabokov, Stondahl, Hitchcock and Empson, among other subjects. He has also contributed more pieces than anyone else to the London Review of Books, nearly nearly 400 of them at the last count. Um, his most recent book and his most recent piece are both on Marcel Proust. The piece is a review of two translations of the first volume of A la Richesse du Tom Perdu, Swan's Way, translated by James Grieve, and The the Swan Way, or The Swan Way, we can talk about pronunciation maybe a bit later, translated by Brian Nelson. Hello, Michael, and thank you very much for talking to me today. And good morning, Tom. Proust's novel, you write at the start of your piece, is founded on a gesture so famous that it's hard to retain the idea of its risk. It's also so famous that you take the risk of, of not saying what it is, though in your last paragraph you do refer to the Madeleine episode in which the narrator is, as you put it, too preoccupied with the evocation of his complicated feelings to get far in understanding them. The episode is also so famous that it's sometimes misremembered by readers or or by people referring to it who may mention the Madeleine but neglect to mention the tea. So maybe to begin, you could tell us what happens with the Madeleine and and the tea and why is it a risky gesture? Okay, the thing that many readers, uh, even good readers, actually ignore uh, is, what I, is what I was basing the, the piece on, in a way, is, is that this, this event might not have happened. Uh, actually, not quite that, since any event might not have happened. But the Proust goes out of his way to underline the ways it might not have happened. And we tend to, uh, all of us tend to overread that, because the story, the, the, the traditional story is a man who's lost all faith in anything, lost all idea of how to write, how to believe in anything, dips a Madeleine, in earlier drafts, it was a piece of toast. <laughs> it became a Madeleine, dips a Madeleine in a cup of tea, and was overwhelmed by a sense that life has changed for him and that, and that everything that he thought was difficult is easy. The whole world is there, and he has access to everything, and everything is cancelled by this event. And then seven volumes later, he has another series of, of episodes like this. He trips on a paving stone. He hears, a, he hears a, a someone sort of knocking on a door, uh, three or four of these things, and they all come together. And so the time frame would be of the Madeleine and the time frame of, of seven volumes later, that is, in, in actual writing time, 14 years later. <laughs> it's the same moment. Within, within, within months, the narrator has had this extraordinary experience of invasion by something that cancels time for him, allows him to know who he is, and allows him to feel as he says, immortal. And at one point, in the, at the end, he says, my, one of my favorite lines in the book is the, the narrator says, after he's enlisted three or four of these events, picking up you know, seven volumes late on the, on the Madeleine in the first one, he says, it was as if, as if chance wanted to help me with these things, as if life was, was engaged in piling up these experiences. Because the person who's doing the piling up 
is A, the narrator, and B, Marcel Proust. <laughs> but the, the striking thing at the beginning and the thing that people tend to, to misread, except people like Chris Prendergast, who's a very good reader of this kind of skepticism in, in Bruce, but is that he, the, and, and the detail is quite wonderful. The story of the, of the medal, the actual story of the medal in, in this, in the version, the version in Swan's Way, is the narrator comes home on a cold day. And his mother says, would you like a cup of tea? And he says, yes, although he usually would say, no, he doesn't like cups of tea. He says, yes. At this point, a maid comes in and offers him a medallion as well, and he says, no, thanks. And then he changes his mind, dips the medallion in the tea, and everything happens. So but my question always reading this is, what is Bruce doing when he's so clearly setting up this, this event as a non-event? I did something I never do. I said no, and yet. Yeah, yeah. I, said, I said no, uh, and then I changed my mind. Or supposing his mother was at home when he came in. Or what, you know, so, uh, there are like dozens of things there, and he's, he's insisting both, I think, on the, the weirdly random chance. That's why I started with the notion of chance. A weirdly random uh, chance question here, and the sense that it's sort of inevitable, and it's the secret to the whole story. So it's a bit like a, like a sort of Aladdin or Aladdin's cave or something where, where suddenly there's an option for the, genie, for the lamp not to work or something. <laughs> And then so, so that you shake the lamp and it does work. Okay, fine. Yeah. <laughs> and it and it whether or not he does dip the madeleine in the tea which his mother gives him and as the the dissolving crumbs in his mouth brings back or he says it brings back this, this memory of when his aunt used to give him a madeleine dipped yes. in tea, right? Yes. But that I mean, I suppose I mean I suppose the other thing about this I mean it has. I mean, it's maybe too easy to read as a sort of a metaphorical force to it, that somehow the Madeleine soaking up the tea or dissolving in the tea is like the narrator's mind sort of plunging into memory and dissolving in the past or that. Is that, is that the kind of reading that, that it would be open to or is that? Oh, no, absolutely, Tom. I think that really works well. Because, because the, see, what, what, what's happening here is, to put it a, a bit too simply, is that the narrator and to some extent, Proust himself had given up on on the conscious mind and on the world of intention and design. So they left. They haven't got anything else except chance. But and not just because chance won't help, but because the, the mind, the conscious mind, is, a, is is of no help. It's good for some things. It's good for practical things, but it will not save your life or make you feel immortal. But sense will do that. So in this case, taste could also be smell. Could also be hearing. But as well, all of these moves, the, the, the memory moves, the thing that, that produce the magic, they're all, they're all um, they circumvent the intelligence and the conscious mind, which has been getting in the way. So it's a kind of a rather, rather beautiful, very dramatic sort of story against the conscious mind and against the intelligence, which fortunately are not all we have. <laughs> and doesn't he, doesn't he try to chase the memory, the memory, the sort of in, has this in, sort of sudden yes. involuntary memory, yeah. and, 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 but the more he tries consciously to pursue it it kind of a it, the more it gets away from him yes he gets worried when so, the more he tries he doesn't get worried so i can't do this anymore i'll lose it and then there is a kind of conversation it's never quite settled in the whole book about how the the main sort of magical story is that this is a this is a wonderful event it, it restores the past to you in the present right because it, it now is when you're eating the madeleine or touching the madeleine, dipping the madeleine in the tea but then is also now well, now is also there. That's the magical thing. But actually, there are quite a few moments in the book where actually a memory is very painful and there's no redemption. It's just horribly vivid. And so it's not always great when the past comes back. 
No, the, the kind of magical story about coming back, because that's what you want more than anything. You want the bus to come back. But actually, in practice, sometimes the bus coming back is pain and, and disaster. So, But there's presumably also reason to mistrust this, because it is quite a deliberately written book or series of books, right? It's not as if, I mean, he doesn't claim, it's not a case of automatic writing that, no, there is no, there's no. a huge amount of self-consciousness and deliberateness and so there's a sort of he's also aware he's fully aware i think of, of the irony of writing the only way to write is with your conscious mind and the only way to write is intentionally the only way to be a writer is to somehow circumvent those things <laughs> you have to get around them in an earlier a draft for, for some of this stuff he ta- he talks about remembering truths that we never knew which is actually unintelligible in a way, but it it makes a sort of sense. How could you remember something you never knew? And he loves, in this context, he loves to use the the musical metaphor. So he will say, at one point he says in that passage, the beautiful things that we shall write, if we do write them, are like a tune that we can't properly remember. We can't hum it, we can't sing it, we can't note it, we don't know what key it's in, we don't know any of these things. And then if we work at it, what he says is a wonderful uh, sort of lineup. If you hear the tune... If you hear this tune, but you can't really get a hold of it, you're gifted. Right? Most people aren't gifted even. Most people don't even hear the tune. But gifted people hear it, but they can't do anything with it. The thing that would allow you to do something with it is talent. Talent is different from being gifted. And talent means you work at it. Talent really means work. So that when you work on this tune, you, could, you couldn't really remember. And you sort of recover it. And then you're in a condition to hum it and sing it. And, and that's, that's what he says he's doing, essentially. And the, the other thing that's nice in this context is that that memory place, the place of the childhood and the, and the place where he first uh, where he learns about Swan and so on, he tells it twice, once before the memory experience and once after. As long as he hasn't had the memory experience, the only thing he remembers about the past is the time when his mother wouldn't give him a coming kissing goodnight. And he says, actually, this is brilliantly pictured. There's a... There's a, there's a uh, a graphic novel version of Proust, where he says at one point that the whole house was just two floors and a staircase. Downstairs, upstairs where I went to bed, and the stairs where my mother would not come up and give me, give me a glance, all there was. And the, and the graphic novel has a, has a picture of this scene. The house, with the, it's all, sta- all there is a staircase. Then he has the memory, and, the, and, it, and suddenly it comes back, now everything comes back to it. It's, it's sort of, it can be naturally remembered outside of his torments, outside of subjectivity, he just remembers what so it's, it's a bit like the first time he's gifted, but he he can't get the tune, and the second time he's he's talented because he's worked on it. Because you wrote about the uh, the graphic novel version, I remember that it's quite soon after. I, yeah, it's quite soon after I started working at the LRB, and actually I had a, had a look at it and had to look at those some of the pictures that we reproduced, and I I had a mild memory event, sort of plunged back into the <laughs> my early days working at the LRB. My feeling about this memory event is that a lot of people find it very strange, but I think it's quite common that the, the, that the notion of, of a sense of some kind. And so what Proust is describing is not some weird Proustian thing, but a thing that happened, in a way something quite banal. Just, I mean, I used to, you probably got on, but I, I, there was a time I spent during the war, uh, World War II, I spent a lot of time at, at an aunt's house because my mother would go and see my father was in the Navy. And there was a time up to sort of late 20s when I could turn on a tap in the bathroom and as the water ran, I was back in that house. Totally. Then after a while, I couldn't do it, and it wouldn't, it wouldn't work anymore. 
Like, well, you probably, you probably have something like that, don't you? you know, yeah, there are lots like, of those things, and particularly smells, and you know, I think everyone has it. And I suppose that's the, but what Proust, as you say, the difference with Proust is that he has the talent to turn it into, to be able to write about it and describe it, that we can, and as we read it, I mean, I suppose one of the reasons it's so famous is it's that recognition, that everyone, to some extent, has a recognition of yeah. the event. They read about him doing it, and they think, yes, I know what that's like, but I don't have, <laughs> don't have the talent to describe it. But the, but this question of, of the the present and the past, of course, that Proust himself or the novel itself is now, as it were, receding into the past ever further as we're reading it, that the present mm-hmm. of the novel, so there's, as it were, when it was being written and then looking back to the childhood. And one of the ways which that the, the novel is going back into the past, but we're still, I mean, this kind of leaping over time that you write about this bit in the, in the piece is that we can almost be tracked through English translations of it. You you quote from or refer to, I think, six different English versions of the Côte de Chesuan, beginning with Scott Moncrief in the 1920s. And some of those versions are updatings or revisions of Scott Moncrief. Some are entirely fresh translations. So why so many? Or would it be better to say, why not more? I think both of those are good. Exactly. And I think we're, I can't think of another writer who's been sort of retranslated in this way, and so it's quite interesting when when the 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 first really new translation of, of, of appeared in two thousand two. The, the Chris Prendergast volume, where each volume had a different. There were seven volumes. Each volume had a different translator. So very a very successful, interesting venture. There was a huge reaction uh, from many people on behalf of the of the Scott Montreal saying, "How dare you!" We've already got a great translation of Proust. What the hell is this, this about? And that, at that point, that idea, I think, well, then there's notion you only you only do one translation, and it, if you don't need another one, don't look at one. I think the ground has changed now. I think no, I don't think people would say, no, and, or a publisher wouldn't wouldn't say now we don't need another translation. They, you would you would say, well, what would be interesting about it? And why is it good to have another one? And I think the and then I felt I actually I've discovered this writing that piece. Uh, the the story of starting was I uh, someone at the, at, at the magazine sent me the James Grieve translation of 1982 of this one's way, and that was the idea. I just review that. Then we discovered there was a new Oxford thing in the works. Uh, now first volume coming out and six to come, and so suddenly out of nowhere there, there's this there's one going back, one going forward. And at that point, I didn't know there was a new edition of the Scott Moncrief, still not complete, because he's waiting for copyright to, to flip. And so the last volume is not out yet of, of the of this Scott Moncrief. And in between time, there have been two rewritings of the Scott Moncrief. So at this point, there's a whole, uh, uh, the whole question of reviewing, say, one or two volumes of, of translation suddenly became a whole question, what is going on here? What do we learn from this stuff? And it's exactly your question. Do we not need another translation, or do we, do we need as many as we can get i did find that in a way that stuff quite bewildering what to say and i found myself saying things like the fact that the difference between translations are not as large as the similarities in many cases <laughs> it's not and also it's and i did i learned a lot just trying to figure out some of that stuff which i think is quite small things small differences are interesting but you can't make a big drama out of them you can't claim this is the right one or the wrong one you can say I'm interested, this is interesting or this is not interesting. But given real choices, and this has changed too, I think at the time, I'm not sure when, when to date this, but there was a long time when the question in translation was, do we need it? Is the, is the one already? And the other is, is it correct? 
How many mistakes does it make? You know, and, it, and it was true that translation used to be full of terrible mistakes, really gross mistakes. I, I used to read, so I read I, in the 70s, I read a lot of Latin American fiction. And one, one reviewing practice was to read it in English and mark all the idioms that looked a bit strange to me and look them up. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with making mistakes. I mean, everybody makes mistakes, and particularly about idioms, and particularly in a language like Spanish, say, for example, where the same language has got different idioms from one country to the next. So my Spanish is Mexican Spanish, and I can explain, for example, to native Spanish speakers what Mexican idioms mean and how they work, <laughs> because that's the idioms. So that question of languages is really interesting. But there was a lot of mistakes. You just had to check whether it was correct. And then it seemed okay. Now I think, the st- and, and, they were, and the accompanying those were huge amounts of academic translations which were correct but unreadable. You just couldn't, I mean, just, that didn't sound like English at all, right? Because they weren't writers. They were just, you know. That's why people like Robert Lowell was important, you know, because he did, he did a book of translations and called them imitations. And he took lots of liberties. And he did, but that's a great question. What are you doing when you translate something? And I think that really became an interesting question. And the, and the evidence here, these six different versions, they don't, they don't produce any real conclusion. They, they've been lots of evidence for diff- differences, but nothing that will allow you finally to decide what sort of thing you're looking for and why not have another translation. Yeah. And one of the things that you, you say in the piece, which I think is, is clearly right, is that perhaps we should be collating rather than dividing the English <laughs> versions. And you also you quote uh, Christopher Prendergast um, saying translation is not a zero-sum game, which seems to be, I mean, that's really important. But if yeah. I mean, translation, I mean, before anything else, I mean, it's a, it's a form of reading, isn't it? You're, and the way that there are different ways of reading, so there are different ways of translating. And you know, as with criticism, really, that if good criticism opens a text up rather than closing it down, maybe good translation should do that as well, which means making space for other translations and including mistakes, because sometimes mistakes are interesting. And, yeah, I think that's really great. And I think since now that there's a double move, um, academic translations are better and more fluent and more literary. The, the world of mistakes is more or less vanished. It's not that nobody makes any mistakes anymore. It's that they're not common and they're not, they're not the first thing to worry about. Then there's the whole double theory of translation that, that, um, that Brian Nelson mentions, but it's, it became very common. And it's mainly, in English, it's most famous through the, through the, uh, the translation from Russian, say where it, do you domesticate the foreign language and make everything sound English, as English as you can, or do you, ex, do you exaggerate in a way the strangeness of it so you make sure nobody will ever think that they were really reading English? <laughs> so there's a kind of double. But one is, the, what's the translator to do? Should the translator make, make the foreign language sound like English, fluent English, or should it actually retain as much strangeness as possible so we, so we know we're reading a translation or not? So, I mean, obviously, extreme versions of both of these things <coughs> can be pretty bad. <coughs> but I think every, every translator needs somehow to negotiate that. I remember John, John Sturrock, who was one of the translators of the 2002 Penguin Proust. He translated Sodom and Gomorrah, Volume 4. And he was definitely more of the keeping the strangeness i mean i think he would yeah. he would have said yeah. that you definitely you should never let the reader forget that they're reading a translation from french and that you're doing the reader a disservice and the text a disservice if you sort of lull them into imagining that they're reading an unmediated original whatever that might be but i also I do remember when he 
him describing a, a discussion or a disagreement that he'd had with his copy editor in the US. That he, he'd used the word route to describe one of the Princess the, the Guimont's parties, and he was very pleased with this. And the, and the American copy editor said, well, no one would understand this. We have to come. And they'd like suggested shindig or... Uh, or <laughs> <laughs> and he, but, but I'm glad to say that I think John got his way because the word route does appear in, in yeah. that volume and, uh, and shindig does not. But anyway, but he was, very, yeah, of the the idea that you can't you have to keep the foreignness in but that seems to be a less current view now that Grieve and Nelson I mean I know that Grieve is from 1982 but Nelson as you said doesn't take that view. No and I think it's it's interesting that Nelson's a good example because he he claims that he's in favor of otherness rather than strangeness or a certain kind of strangeness rather than the other but actually his is actually a very English Sort of play, and it's very interesting. That one of the, one of the cases I men- mentioned in the in, in that piece is if you're translating, say, a negative remark, he no longer had any faith. Do you keep that as a negative and turn it into he lost his faith, or he did not lose? There's a sort of do you follow the track of a thought, or do you just say which is the best way of delivering the meaning? And I think translators really do disagree about that in interesting ways. I, I feel the same as John does, essentially. I think that, but I, I do see an argument for the other kind, as long as you don't overdo it. I think James Grieve <laughs> rather overdoes it. But, but I, I think I was looking the other day at Emily Wilson's translation of the Odyssey. You know, and the, the first line of the Odyssey describes in all, all I, don't, I don't know any Greek, but I mean, the, in all other translations, Odysseus is, is described as a man of many ways, or different versions of the idea of a man of many ways, whatever that means. So. And Emily just translates this as complicated. He was a complicated man. And when I first read that on its own, I thought, this is, this is not what I, I want to hear something. I want, I want to hear the feeling of whatever that m- many ways is about. This is about John's route. I want to hear this. But then I started to read the book, and I discovered that she keeps the suspense and the movement, the drama of the thing so well that actually I think she made a choice not to, not to offer complicated word moments but yeah, move, move, move up the pace, and I was quite taken by that because I, 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 I did initially feel the loss of the intricacy of the idea of the man of many ways. But then I after thought, actually, this is moving very well, and it's and it's very gripping, and it doesn't feel English. It feels just speedy and on the ball. Yeah, and, and ironically, there's something. I mean, that estranging moment that you begin to read something that was composed as long ago as the Odyssey was. And so you have that man of many ways. It's not English. It sounds like something translated from Greek, ancient Greek. But perhaps we've got so familiar with that way of translating from ancient Greek that actually, in order to create that moment of of estrangement, you have to do something, sort of turn it around the other way and say, tell me of a complicated man. And then that, yeah. because if it had said the man of many ways, you'd have read straight past it without even noticing. So somehow you have to, that's <laughs> right. No, I think that's great. And I, I, I come to feel really that, the question about translation, which is, which is the benefit of having lots of translations and thinking about this, you actually think about, or you think about different languages and what languages allow you to do, and that's always good, which is then you think about cultures and what cultures assume and what they can do. But but it's, it's very attractive, I think, to think of quite of, of making different choices and enjoying quite different choices rather than settling for the, for the, for the one. So I might, you one could enjoy a certain kind of, I mean, if I'm thinking about sort of do I... Do I want to read this translation that gets me close to the movement of the prose and this sort of thing? I, I would want one that, as, as possible, keeps the vocabulary, keeps the word order, 
and help me to feel I know something about that book. Uh, I like that cover translation, so it would be in the but on the, that line. So Lydia Davis would be the best Proust translation of, of that volume. But also, you could think of something else. As long as it was not too too out of control, it, the translator could have a vision, and it could be an idiom or a language that, that was that spoke for itself. It didn't reveal. Uh, it didn't point you back to a text. As you, I thought what you just said about the Odyssey. It didn't point you back to another text. It creates its own idiom and speaks it. I, I, I can see a lot of value in that, although it's sort of, sort of heresy these days. <laughs> well, I suppose, because one of the nice things as a reader, that in the end, that if, you're, if you are a translator, you have to make a decision about a word and about word order. You're limited to these decisions. But as, as readers of translations, we can have it both ways or every way, that there are all these different yeah. translations, and we don't, we don't have to decide. It's a sort of... Yeah, I think it's a bit, it's a bit There's a, a wonderful... One of my favourite versions of this thing is in the last volume of, of Proust, in the, uh, translated by, by Ian Patterson for, uh, for, the, for, the, you know, for the Prendergast edition. He translates a word which no, no one has ever known what to translate, but so it's a word that Proust had invented called paparola. And Paparol were the bits of he, you know, he had this manic um, desire to keep writing and create. And so he would he would write something, get it get it typed, and then correct type and add it endless amount. Of, then he had the proofs. He would write on the proofs and so on. And when he'd written all over the proofs and there was no more space, his housekeeper would give him little bits of paper that he'd stick to the page, and he could write on these stick, bits of paper sticking to the page. And she called. I think she invented the word. She she called them Paparol. Ian translates this as manuscribbles, <laughs> which seems perfectly sort of it catches the the event and the thing, but it's, it's got not, it's not the same sort of joke as the yeah. And I suppose it's a joke that you get when you can see whether or not you know the parole or not. See, I think you know. I think you do without the parole because it's an invented word and it's related to you know it's both the manuscript work and it's <laughs> and it's scribbling. Yeah, I mean and that. That question of those those moments of of surprise or strangeness when reading. I mean, this is a probably an incredibly naive or gauche or something question. But one of the strangest things about Swan's Way to me, or when or was my first read it, is is the is the structure of it. Not in, not in the sense of the movement between the present and the past that we've talked about already, but the I think you describe it as an insertion. But when I first read it, it, it seemed more like an intrusion, really, of the story of of Swan, Swan. and Odette, of yeah. Swan's that you have. You have this introspective, self-reflective first-person narration, and then suddenly, almost out of nowhere, you have this impersonal, omniscient third-person, yes, sort of relatively almost old-fashioned-seeming sort of story that's sort of shoved in the middle of it, and and then we sort of uh, you, you take it for granted now because there it is, and this is the novel and all the rest of it. But it it is very odd, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is. Yeah, and I think he. Because at that point, when he wrote the book, he didn't know where that whether he didn't have the volumes divided. He had the beginning and the end because because of what we were saying about the the Madeleine, because the Madeleine experience was linked to a series of other experiences, and all he had to do was write the novel in between them, so to speak. And that's why I think the end of Swan's Way has this has this feeling of failure and, and disaster, which I think we're meant to to actually be moved by and feel that's it. So he can go, he can, he can arrive at the surprise of. Ah oh, yes, you remember that Madeleine thing? Something like that had didn't happen again. And once I figured out what was happening, I could write this book. You know, so, so, but I think the, one of the things, actually all of the editions talk about this, but the, the thing that comes after this one thing, when he returns to the story, the, the, the narrator is a bit older. Now he's in his teenager and so on, living in Paris and so on. And that really belongs in another volume. 
and he just chopped it for length at that point. So we published that volume as we have it now in 1913 and didn't publish anything else until 1919. And the next, but really a lot of things in that, actually James Green says this in his introduction, a lot of things in that first volume depend on things that, that really have happened in this, what is now the second volume. <laughs> because there was no natural cutoff point for that. And I, so I think the fact that writing a book which has a beginning and an ending with no natural breaks in the middle, plus one isolated separate mini novel is sticking into the whole thing. Right? It doesn't have any shape in that, that way. And I think you're right about, about the, this one's way thing. I don't quite know. What, I think he, what he needs is, he, he see, the, that's one story happens before he was born, before the narrator was born. So he, he, he's telling the story about his own earlier years. And suddenly, out of nowhere, we get this novel, which he has written, presumably, at some date, much later than anything we've seen so far. But it's all hearsay. See, because he's, he's only he's just picked up these stories, everything. He does know Swan because Swan comes to visit. Swan is Swan, the interesting, one of the interesting, uh, moving links is Swan is a pain to him because when Swan arrives, he doesn't get the mother's goodnight kiss. They tell him to go to bed without the goodnight. So Swan's a kind of the enemy of his peace and happiness and relation with his mother and so on. And he does have this wonderful line, which is the, that if uh, I thought Swan would have laughed at this, but if I'd known what I later knew about him, I know he wouldn't laugh, he would have understood exactly what I was calling, when the person you love is not in the place where you want them to be. <laughs> and so it fits in a way, but it's, I think you're right, Tom. It's, it's a very strange move. I think, I, think, I, don't, I think we only read it now with, the, with comfort because we got used to it. So I suppose that raises the question you know, of, of who is the narrator, or rather yeah. what is, you know, and you write about this in the piece, what is the relationship between Proust and his narrator? It's a really good question. I, th I think, I, and to me, the question has grown more complicated. I, I think before I would have thought, look, the narrator is Marcel Proust near enough. Or in any case, it's, it's, it's a consistent person that Proust invented. The more you read, the more you pay attention to the language, I find the more, the more it seems impossible to believe that Proust is endorsing everything that the narrator is saying. Sometimes he's setting him up for a fall. And you can't set him up if you're the person who's going to fall. I mean, you could you could you could think that's an earlier self, but then you'd have the, the writer would be the later self mocking the earlier self. But it might be the gap is large enough for it not to be an earlier self at all, but someone you might have been and someone you could imagine. But she has lots of things with you. And I do think I say this in the piece that here the translators, in a way, the more awkward it is, the, the, the easier it is to think about that, that question. The question you ask about who is telling the story, is, is Proust his narrator and is he not? There is also a wonderful moment, which I talk, I talk about this in my book, but not, not in that piece, where, where there's a, there's, there are two, uh, two moments where, where the name Marcel appears right, in the whole of the volume, where Albertine, both times it's Albertine, she said, oh, my dear Marcel, my dear Marcel. On one of the occasions, the prose said, she said, my dear Marcel, at least that's what she said if we give the narrator the same name as the author of this book. Now, what most people, what most critics think is this is a slip. That is, he had many, many more mentions of Marcel. So the narrator was called Marcel, and he took them all out and just forgot to take that one out or didn't get around to it. So it's, it's a mistake. The narrator is nameless, right? And it's, and it's a mistake the name appears there. I feel about that one man, one left man. I think he did. That's true. That he, that he, he had a name and he took out all the names. I think he left that one there as a deliberate kind of riddle or joke, for the same reason as the Madeleine almost didn't happen. If you say, if we give him the same name, 
that's not an accident. You're saying, you're, you're saying, you're not saying we won't give in the name, and you're not saying you will either. <laughs> you are you are raising the question that the narrator might have the same name as the author. Of course, it is a kind of brilliant joke. I, I mean, I, I also think I, I say this in the book too, but. The, the, there's nothing extraordinary about a person being called Marcel in a book by Marcel. There are people called Jane in Jane Austen, for example. I mean, it's a choice that, I mean, in the comic book version that you've already referred to, that they make the decision that he looks like Proust as well. I mean, that when you see yeah. him as an adult, he is, it's a caricature of, of Proust, but it's that same. And presumably given the, the paparole and the nature of that, it would be very odd for him to have left it in by mistake. Given how careful he was, with the I previous. think so. I think so, and all that sort of. Thing. And the other thing is, yeah, yeah. But really I mean, that question of how he knows things again, which comes. There's a scene which you discuss at some length in the piece where he's spying through the windows of the daughter of the composer Vantoi, and he he said it's sort of a bit where just before he says he has to stay and watch because if he tried to leave, she'd hear him rustling the bushes, and then she'd know he was there and think he was spying her on pur- on purpose, and so therefore he has to stay on spy on, and spy on her even though that was never his intention, which is a sort of a wonderfully convoluted piece of, of self-justification. But it's also, <laughs> but, it's, but it's also, it seems to be, it's, part, it's also a, a joke about, well, how how do you know this? How do you, I mean, it almost could be out of fielding or something, the kind of, well, how do you, what's your, you know, how do you know what happened? Well, I was happened to fall asleep outside the window and woke up just at this moment, and that's how I know. I mean, is that a kind of, is that something he does often? That he does it of, does it all the time, and I think I think we he doesn't highlight it all the time. But I and I think many readers don't want to see that part of the deal they make with the novel is that, 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 that the, the too simple view would be there are writers like Stern, Fielding, uh, many modern writers who are always interfering or showing up. In, Thackeray even does it, showing up in the middle of the other things, and then there are others who who will give us our illusion and will never inter- They made a deal. They won't interrupt the, the illusion, and I think, I think what I think is actually that that's more a reader's that's more a critical fantasy than a than a novelistic practice. I think most novels, including Jane Austen, and many others, often have those meta moments where the question the question is, how do you know this, and why could this only happen in a novel and not not somewhere else? It happens all the time, I think, and I also think that it doesn't interfere with the illusion. It's, it's actually often helps the illusion to play these games, but the, but there's, there is a, there was certainly for a long time a standard reading about these things, which meant that you had to respect the illusion and pretend that, that you had to pretend all of this fiction is fact, and I, the author, got nothing to do with it. I didn't make it up. I didn't even arrange it. So I'm just telling it like it. <laughs> just I just happened to look <laughs> through the window, and there it was. There yeah, it was. Yeah. <laughs> And I think what's interesting about this is the story. Uh, there's a very good book about Cruise played by James, what's his name? Josh uh, Landy, Joshua Landy, uh, where he, he, he takes what used to be the, the consensus about Cruise was that the, the narrator and the author are identical. That is, that is Marcel, whether he's got the name or not. This is a totally confessional. And the book we are reading is the book that he finally managed to write. And he got to the end, had these connected, the later memory experiences with the Madeleine, sat down and wrote his book. And, so the, you know, the and book that the narrator writes about himself writing is the book? It's the book that we have just read. Yeah. Joshua Landy, has, and that, it's a, it's, I, I, I rather like, I don't, 
I can't really believe in that right that reading, but I quite like it. So, and many, many readers, many generations of people, there's still still people. People are divided into two groups whether they talk that way. We have just read the book that the narrator of this novel succeeded in writing, or we have just read a novel which is about a man who wanted to write a novel and who is still wondering whether he will have time to write it. And in any case, if he wrote it, it might well be quite different from the one we've just read, which was written by Marcel Proust. <laughs> which which makes him sound sound like Borges. I mean, it's a sort of... Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And I do think that sense of... It's, it's sort of dizzying stuff, but I, th- I think that feeling of... It's, the other thing is what it sounds like. I think it's someone like Philip Roth. You know, we read Philip Roth, Sherlock, or all these things. There's a person called Philip Roth in there, but how similar is the person called Philip Roth to, to, to the novelist? So. Yeah, or or the Chaucer who appears in the Canterbury Tales. How? You know. Yeah, it's, it's, I just I just read and reviewed a book about uh, Roberto Bellagno, where the, the person talks about novel theory being too not sophisticated enough, academic theory not being sophisticated enough about this stuff. So there's a kind of interesting exchange where the, the old model would be good old fiction is, is pure illusion, stays with the illusion, doesn't, doesn't muck about. Postmodern nonsense messes about and you have to be fancy and silly to do this stuff. Or flip, you know, the old stuff was the old stuff, this is the new stuff. But actually supposing the division was not so, not so drastic. So there's an idea that Homer... Well, there used to be an idea that Homer was a blind singer. Yeah. And yeah. that idea comes from the portrait of a blind singer in the Odyssey. But the idea that what and that, oh, maybe this is a self-portrait, but of course there's no, nowhere does he say it's a self-portrait, but the idea that pe- people wanted to believe, and they've been wanting to believe that for hundreds of years, that ancient Greeks wanted to have that belief. So whether, so it's a, yeah, the idea that these things which are described as postmodern, you can say, but what about Stern? But what about Chaucer? And then you can go all the way back and say, well, what about Homer? So, yeah. There's a great one in, in Jane Austen, I think it's in Northanger Abbey, where she says, or maybe in Mansfield Park, where she, she says, essentially, I mean, she said it more elegantly, but she says, the reader will be able to tell from the few short, four, small number of pages that are left that we're hastening towards felicity. <laughs> the happy end is in sight. No, no, it's totally brilliant. But, but the evocation of the physical book that we're reading and the idea that happy ends are... The only truth in a happy end is that the reader wants one. And it's like saying, "Don't worry, don't you know? Don't be too you know that kind of that. Don't worry, everything's going to be okay." Yeah, I do but, think the idea that I think there's a collusion here between what the author is doing and what the reader wants. Kind of interesting deal. I think it's also very interesting not to settle the matter because I, I, I wouldn't want because it's, it's too smart to sort of say, "Oh, it's always the skeptical, it's always the complicated, tricky one," because that's the truth. That's just as naive in a way as saying the old-fashioned illusionistic one was the truth. What's interesting is the fact of do we do we pause to think about it, or do we do we skip it this time, or do we come back? You know, I think it seems yeah, to be or you or you have both that somehow both are, both are true at once. You can they're held in. Yeah. yeah. Because the other question of whether I mean, even to to say if it were autobiography, but then again, what I mean, autobiography, the idea that you can have a an autobiography without fictional elements. Yes, is impossible anyway. So even if it were autobiography, that doesn't, in a way, that doesn't take you no. that much further. Is this autobiography or fiction? It's kind of well, I mean, you can say all fiction is to some extent autobiographical, and auto, all autobiography is to some extent fictional. So it's a, yeah, and also that you then you get to enter this realm. Realm, Proust loves this kind of thing, but you enter that realm where things are are 
you know they're literally, they're not literally true, but they're true in another way. And therefore, the only way to make that particular sort of truth available is to pretend that it's true in the other way. <laughs> so Christian is doing that all the time. And I think well, the more you read him, I think, the more you feel what I used to take to be exaggerations or elaborate metaphors or a, bit, a little over fancy feel to me now like uh, the minimum you could do to convey how extraordinary reality is. Because if, 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 if reality doesn't feel like a crazy fantasy, it's not realistic. <laughs> you know? so have, you, have you looked at the newspaper lately or watched TV? <laughs> yeah. I, don't think, I don't think Bruce thought that consciously or worked it out, but I, I, I do think as a matter of, you know, uh, stylistic practice, that's what he's doing. I mean, and that whole question of what's done you know, deliberately and by different ideas of the self, I mean, the, I mean, it's hard to read Proust without thinking of Freud, isn't it? That, I mean, the Freudian readings of... Uh... Absolutely, yeah. And I think that that's... Yeah, and he, it's so interesting, you know, he didn't know anything about Freud. I don't know whether Freud did anything about Proust, but, but they, they had a lot of common ground, you know, the, Proust's father was a doctor who specialized in things like neurasthenia and things like that. Proust was very interested in, in psychology, which at that moment, the late, late 19th century, was a branch of philosophy. And so he, he, he was very interested in what we're going in and based mental conditions. So, and then Freud studied there. So Freud studied in France. Freud's early work was based on, on French work. So, so in a sense, they had, they had a lot of common ground intellectually, which had to do with a sort of what must have felt like a new discovery of the mind as a place, you know, in, in, in the late 19th century. You make a strong case in this piece and, you know, in your book and elsewhere for Proust's comedy. I think you've even compared him provocatively but persuasively, perhaps one of these sort of moves that he does to, to Roger Rabbit in the movie Who Framed Roger Rabbit. <laughs> <Yes. which> is, <laughs> um, so, um, A, how is, why is Proust like Roger Rabbit? And then also, do you think his funny side is, is too often... Overlooked. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it, that's a, it's a great question for several reasons, Tom, because a, some, someone at Columbia called Elizabeth Ledson has written some wonderful stuff about, about Proust, uh, Proust the comedian, Proust funny, brilliant stuff. But she, she feels she has to apologize to all Proustians that I'm going to talk about him being funny, and I know I'm not supposed to do this, and it's not really there. Um, and then she, she, she demonstrates, she, she likes to compare him to the Marx Brothers. And with lots of Jewish jokes and like I would, I would never want to belong to any club that would admit me and sort of stuff. And, and it's, it's very good. But the interesting thing is, people have been saying he was funny from the very beginning, and everybody forgets every time. So it's, I don't quite know what the what the machinery is, but there's the the sense is that he he was and is funny. But you can't, as it was, say that you and you can say that, but it won't last. So it will need saying again. <laughs> You somehow you remember something that you didn't know was true. Yes, right? yeah, oh, yeah. No. and I think the, I think probably that there is a something, there is a kind of um, rear guard snobbery about great writers, that, a notion that great writers can't really be funny. That's why Dickens is not as good. I mean, this is, this is old fashioned stuff now. I, I hope it's old fashioned. I hope it's gone gone altogether. But there, there was a consensus say say that George Eliot was better than Dickens, because in the end, Dickens was just an entertainer. And she was a philosopher. In fact, she can also be quite funny too. And so, so and the, but the idea that comedy and the idea of tragedies are more important. Every Shakespearean tragedy is more important than any comedy he wrote. Deeper, closer to the meaning of life, and all this sort of stuff. That, that's the kind of prejudice I think we we, we inherited. 
And probably it's that prejudice that's making sense. If Proust is the great writer he's supposed to be, he can't be fun. I mean, and is that more true in the Anglophone world? Or is it, does that, I mean, is it true in France as well? Is it an idea that Racine, Molière? I think it's true in France yeah. too, yeah, I think. That's sort of the kind of, the kind of, um, but it's a bit, it's a bit what, if you think again to English fiction like Jane Austen or, or Feeling, to move towards that genre of, of comedy saying, I'm going to give you the happy end that you started, that you knew you were going to get. So many people just seem frivolous rather than, and not, not realistic, not, not, not vraisemblable, not following the truth in it. And my my sense of what, how this works is there's a great moment in in, in the feelings Tom Jones where where he says something one of those little prefaces to the chapters he says something like uh, there is a there is a theory that in this world uh, good people are rewarded and evil people are punished and this is an excellent idea and there's only one thing wrong with it it's not true and then he proceeds to do that in the novel now I think that is as profound as any tragedy. <laughs> Really, but it's. It, I understand that it seems frivolous to to many people. Where they need, they need to, they need to be direct, and people need to say to you, "I'm telling you the truth." Yeah, very good. Then does Proust? I don't know. Does Proust have a happy ending? I mean, the first volume doesn't. But if you know, he's he. You know, that's what's interesting about the ending because obviously, in one sense, he does because we we are reading a book that someone wrote, <laughs> whoever he is. But on the other hand, that that sense of doubt of of. I might not have had the Madeleine. I might not have dipped the tea. If I, even if I had the tea, I might not have got the Madeleine. If you had the Madeleine, I might not have dipped it into the tea. And so all of that is still there on the last pages of the book where, where he's, he's saying, if I, if I, it's, it's all about time. And that the last sentence is all about if I have time. He doesn't say, oh, now I finally... See, he, there are many times in the book when, the, when the, the time reference is outside the book you know, things have already happened, historical things have happened, which we know the book is already finished, right? But the book itself actually ends on, on a, a, if I have time, this is what I'll do. And yeah. uh, that, I think, and that, I find that sort of very moving since it's, I think, I think what there, I think Proust, did actually, that, I think that is Proust in a way, saying something like, look, I've been an invalid all my life. <laughs> Uh, in the senses of enjoy being an invalid, it's part of who I am, it's my identity. But I know this is dangerous stuff, and I could die at any minute. And he did, of course, die before the book was published. He died when only what, three, four, three volumes around, four volumes around. He, I think he's saying both, I'm, this book is already finished. Enough of it is there, so I've done, I'm done. And also, I'll never be done, because this thing can't be finished. And it might be not done in a bad way because I might die just when I was about to do something different because you can't tell (laughs) Michael Wood thank you very much thank you you can read Michael's piece in the 4th of January issue of the LRB along with James Meek on the new TV the subject of last week's podcast Andrew O'Hagan on Robert Louis Stevenson and Deborah Friedel on Catherine Mansfield and there's still time to subscribe to the LRB's Close Readings podcast. There are three new series this year, Colin Burrow and Claire Bucknell on satire, including an episode on Jane Austen, Adam Schatz talking to Judith Butler, Pankaj Mishra and Brent Hayes-Edwards about some of the revolutionary thinkers of the 20th century, and Emily Wilson and I are back with a new season of Among the Ancients. Go to lrb.me forward slash plus for details. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilbourne. The music is by Kieran Brunt. I'm Thomas Jones. Thank you for listening.